Jackson Hole, NVIDIA, and how's the consumer doing? Welcome, it's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. I'm Danny Clayton. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, is here. Dave Spano, President and CEO. Thank you, Danny. You know, we had a lot going on this week, and as you mentioned, Danny, Jackson Hole was part of the conversation, and folks, every year, folks get together to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and they talk about what they think is going to happen, but most importantly, Jerome Powell, Chair of the Federal Reserve, was there, and he did make a speech afterwards which had market-moving events. Well, it, it did. I think there are a lot of investors who were sitting on the sidelines waiting for him to speak on Friday because they didn't want to get blindsided. And while what he said was somewhat uneventful in terms of telling us anything new, he did mention, which I thought was important, that he recognized that owner-equivalent rent, which has been stubborn, it's been persistent right. in the elevation of the CPI, he understands that that's going to lag housing prices. So I felt that that was a good comment on his part. The other thing he said... Is and, and implied is that there's really a division now on the Fed about whether additional rate hikes are necessary. It's going to be data dependent, as you and I have said for years, uh, and that and we'll see how that goes. And basically, my take on it is the Fed is still a headwind. Interest rates are going to remain high for longer than we thought, and that's going to filter through the system. And we are on watch for a credit event. Yeah, I think you you nailed it. That was a lot that you just said right there. But you know, trillions and trillions of dollars of monetary and fiscal stimulus went into the economy post-COVID, and then they followed that up by the most aggressive monetary tightening in decades. And really, that's what we're looking for right now. What effect does that have? And you know, the target of, of the Federal Reserve is 2%. Are they going to get back there? We'll have to see. But you pointed out a really good point. Even though it's trending in the right direction, it's still going to be above their targets, most economists believe, until 2025. That's a ways to go. That's right. And and there are certain things in the inflationary outlook that can change rather suddenly. We know energy prices have the ability to spike higher. We know inventories that are very low levels. Uh, we know China's growth is currently slow. There are real estate problems there. But at any time, the Chinese authorities could announce some sort of fiscal stimulus bill, which would uh, reinvigorate animal spirits. Right. So the inflation fight is far from over. But I guess the way I look at it is you'd much rather have the Fed be accommodative and at your back than in your face. So that's why we've taken a somewhat cautious view in terms of having a broadly diversified portfolio. We're not standing out over our skis. We're fairly balanced in our approach between international and U.S. equities. And in fixed income, we're still uh, shorter duration as a whole. So let's talk about interest rates because it has an effect. You know, you people use the 10-year to price so many things. And uh, in folks in your own portfolios, that is how you value stocks and bonds, as Derek pointed out. But look at this. Mortgage rates are now at 7.5% on a 30-year mortgage, something we haven't seen in decades. And that's one of the ways that we, when we talked about inflation coming and what the Federal Reserve was doing and the monetary policy that it was going to push up interest rates, this is a dramatic effect because when you get mortgage rates higher, that is a pressure on people's pocketbooks. Yeah, and, and a lot of it is an echo effect of COVID. If you think about it, during during the COVID thing and when interest rates were at zero, everyone went out and refinanced their mortgage at less than 3%. So now with mortgage rates at 7 unless you've got the, the money on hand to do an all-cash deal, you're talking about 
giving up an incredibly attractive mortgage rate for something significantly higher in order to move. So people are choosing not to, which is one of the reasons why tactically remodeling stocks and home builders and the rest have, have performed quite well, despite the fact that rates have been rising. You know, the other thing that you did talk about is, you know, not getting over your skis using that anecdotal expression, but you look at valuations and right now valuations are full in lots of measurements. In fact, you can argue that they're past their full capacity in lots of measurements. And that is when you talk about not getting over your skis, that's really what you mean. Right. And in 2023, at the beginning of the year, the estimate for the S&P was $245. Guess what? It's going to be $220. And now the estimate for 2024 is, guess what? $245. So let's say 220 is the more likely number, which is 10% below what the forecasts are. At that valuation, we are currently trading at about 20 times earnings, which essentially is a 5% uh, earnings yield, which is roughly equivalent to what you can get for a three or six month treasury bill. So if you're a little concerned like we are that there's a possibility of a credit event, cash is not trash. That's funny. In cash, of course, you can get paid on folks. You know, 5% is really good to sit on on the sideline and not take a lot of risk. But then again, and last I want, do want to talk about this. One last piece is fixed income. You know, fixed income or bonds have not done well lately, but that doesn't mean it's not an opportunity set. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, they're the, they're primarily a cushion for your portfolio. That did not happen in 2022 when the Fed was aggressively raising rates. But if we're right and there is a credit event out there, when it occurs, long-term rates will go down and they'll go down sharply. And given the duration of 10-year treasuries and 20-year treasuries, the price appreciation one can enjoy there is pretty substantial. So we've been gradually adding duration in our fixed income portfolios. Dirk Felsky, our Chief Investment Officer, Dave Spano, our President and CEO. Stick around, we've got more to come. Investment, retirement planning, tax planning, and estate planning. That's what we do, and we do it as a fee-only fiduciary. Take a lap on our website. We've got a lot of great information. We've got a thing called the Know the Difference Checklist because there's a significant difference between financial advisors. AnnexWealth.com, click on that Get Started button. That is our Week in Review, always available as a podcast and delivered Sundays in our Axiom newsletter. Saturday, August 26th, it's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. We're going to be right back, 620 WTMJ. Back on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Busy show today. Let's get to it. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, is here. Dave Spano is our president and CEO. You know, Danny, when when ChatGPT first came out, you were the first guy to talk to me about that. And we came in here and we started, you know, maybe- We had some fun with it. We did. We put some names and we might have put even your name in on it. But uh, it has certainly been the talk for the last uh, nine months or so. And one of the plays that has been out there in that particular name has been NVIDIA. And NVIDIA has been a stock, folks, that has gone like four or five X uh, so far this year. They came out and their earnings were bizarrely good, Derek. Well, they were they were fantastic. Uh, they beat on the revenue line by 20%, uh, the earnings line by 30%. They even added a stock buyback, which is astonishing to me, given that it trades at over 20 times revenues. But they are what you typically see at the beginning of major transformation in the technology space, and that is a company that provides the picks and shovels. So as more and more companies try to incorporate AI in their business practices, as Microsoft and Google and the rest leverage that up, uh, that leads to sales. And right now, NVIDIA can basically charge whatever they want for those chips. Their margins are more than almost twice what Intel's are, and they, they essentially are going to get away with this for, se- for quite a while because there's no competitor as of yet. Let's go back into the history machine. And I remember back in the late 1990s, 
90s when you, my friend, were a manager of a tech fund. You know, back when 1999 into 2000 wasn't the greatest place to be, but you were there. Do you see any similarities between what's happening then and now? Well, I can certainly think about Cisco Systems, which I think I had about a 10% weighting in in the portfolio, and it was trading at a similar multiple as NVIDIA. And again, they had first mover advantage. They were ahead of the curve. They, they were helping companies get on the internet, internet, right? And over time, more and more competition showed up, Juniper Networks and so on. And eventually, Cisco became dead money, a dead money stock. In fact, it still has not eclipsed its highs from 1999 to this date, even know it has made a ton of money since. And so the question I'm asking you, do you think it's this craziness that's happening with some of these AI stocks that happened before we had the bust in, in March of 2000? Um, I think uh, NVIDIA is a stock that I would probably want to own, uh, but I wouldn't want to be over my skis, as I mentioned earlier. I, I think it is a great company. They're going to do very well in the coming months. But anytime you pay more than 20 times revenues for a company, you, you have to make heroic assumptions to right. justify the valuation. Let's shift uh, topics and go to the retailers. And right now, the consumer is still doing well because we're functionally at full employment at the numbers that we are in. And so the consumers are still doing well, despite the fact that some of the consumer debt is up. So um, we're looking at the retail stocks right now, and a lot of those companies reported recently. Yeah, I want to address a couple of things you just said there. So, for example, in the case of the consumer and debt, Households have the most liquidity they've ever had by a factor of three. So and yes, how, how did that come? But how did from, that come? from the pandemic, right. from COVID, from you know payments, from not spending, from staying at home. So cash on the sidelines is enormous in the case of households. So while consumer debt is going up as a percentage of consumer cash, it really is not a, at a dangerous level. That being said, many of the retailers that have reported in the last couple of weeks have basically beaten numbers by cutting costs. Revenues have actually been down, and as Todd Voice likes to point out on a real on a real rate they're actually negative right because the number of units has gone down it's inflation that's keeping it elevated so consumers are getting a little tired in certain areas but like everything else in our consumer oriented society there are some winners like cruise lines and airplanes and travel locations and the rest as people shift their spending preferences and that's exactly right instead of buying on stuff they're buying on services and events and that's exactly what's happening cruise stocks have gone up substantially you know right up there with some of these ai names so that's something to pay attention to you know where are they fully valued at this point you know key observations when you're talking about staying with your plan is really an interesting wrap-up yeah i mean I, I looked at some data that one of our third-party providers showed and when what what it said over the s p since t- t- 1928 the more years you hold stocks the higher the likelihood is you make money for example if you hold stocks sequentially for two years the odds are are 82 percent you'll make money but if you hold them for 10 it's closer to 95 and that's why we always encourage people not to read the headlines certainly not with a political bias because the headlines will lead you astray you want to have a plan you want to have an asset allocation that makes sense and you want to have dry powder in the event that something happens that's unforeseen in order to capitalize and i will tell you derek every day we get sophisticated folks coming in we get everyday people coming in and we go through those portfolios and say, are you aligned for what's happening today? You know, we've got a political environment. We've got the Fed changing course. There's a lot of stuff going on. That is the reason why you've got to go through that portfolio and make sure you're aligned. Today, we can get that done. We can help you with it. And we do this on a daily basis, Danny. When you were running that tech fund, was that a was that a really tough time in your life? It, it was, in a sense, because we 
we launched it January 1st of 2000 after one of the best years for the NASDAQ in history. And I think the fund at one point was up 40% in the middle of February and by the middle of March was actually down. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Again, if we can help, AnnexWealth.com. Folks, how does financial and retirement work for couples with significant age gaps? It's not impossible, but it takes a good team. We're going to cover that after a break on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management. When one spouse is older than the other, retirement plans can get complicated. Amy Bremer is a CFP and a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management, and she's going to help us sort it out. Hey, Amy. Hi, Danny. Couples with significant differences in ages, 8 to 10 years or more, are likely to find themselves at odds when they're on the cusp of retirement decisions and then throughout their golden years. 20% of second-time marriages are between couples 10 years apart or more. The vast majority of marriages, the woman is younger than the man. Every couple goes through stuff. But does this mean rougher waters for the couple? It doesn't necessarily mean rougher waters. This may be a little bit more challenging than some other families, but it's definitely doable with some communication and some honest soul searching. Let's talk about making it work, Amy. The first step would be? Communication <laughs> and some honest soul searching. So it, it helps for me in practice if couples come to me knowing what they want their ideal retirement to look like. Maybe one spouse wants to go fishing and the other spouse wants to go traveling and visit with you know grandchildren and there's a mismatch there. It doesn't matter what ages you are, there's just a mismatch. The challenge with folks that have mismatches in ages is that you're parachuting together but you're landing at different zones. Yeah. Yeah. So one wants to land and go travel where the other needs to land and has 10 more years to work and that's what creates some challenges retirement and financial planning for couples with significant age gaps. The next thing is, is to save more and we all should, but why these couples? These couples have an extra challenge in that the life expectancy for each person is different and there's this age gap in the middle. So earlier you said that traditionally in these marriages, it's the woman who is the younger spouse. So let's just roll with that. So let's say the man is 10 years older and men have shorter life expectancies than women And then the woman is 10 years behind him and then she's going to have a longer life expectancy. So you need to plan for saving your, your nest egg for a longer period of time. So you need to save more overall than the average couple. We're with Amy Bremer, a CFP and a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Our topic is financial and retirement planning for couples with age gaps of 8 to 10 years or more. Next thing to plan for is? Distributions. How is that money going to come out of your nest egg in retirement to fund your lifestyle? And in practice, I work with the three-bucket analogy. You have a non-qualified bucket or like a brokerage bucket. Then you have your two qualified buckets, which would be a traditional 401k and a Roth 401k. By having diversification in each of those buckets allows you to control your taxes in retirement, more so with a couple that has a large age group between the two of them. If you got a gap in ages, obviously somebody's going to take Social Security before the younger spouse. They're going to maybe hit full retirement age way before the younger spouse. Mm -hmm. So it's really a timing issue, isn't it? Very much of a timing issue. And by having money in all three of those buckets, it allows you to take out your least taxed money first and control how much and when you're paying in taxes. Also, the strategy is to, what you alluded to, Danny, is to time your Social Security 
at Annex here, we help people decide when to take their Social Security so they can maximize it based on their specific example. But since we're talking on the radio today, generally it may make sense for the higher of the earning two spouses to delay to age 70, get that maximum Social Security benefit, and that acts sort of like as a longevity insurance. And this is the whole planning aspect, which is what we do. Correct. Right. Financial and retirement planning for couples with significant age gaps. Got to be flexible. Flexible and lighthearted, I say, because sometimes financial planning can get a little bit morbid. We talk a lot about death. Yeah. Yeah. And it, which makes my job very complicated. If we all knew when we were going to pass, then it would be relatively easy. I wouldn't have a job. But, but you just keep lighthearted about maybe the younger spouse taking care of the older spouse later in age. Another recommendation that we give to folks is long term care insurance, maybe mm. for that younger spouse, because there's not going to be someone to left to take care of them if they don't have children. Not one of our clients' plans are the same because none of our clients are the same. We tailor it to your circumstances and help produce the retirement you desire. It all starts at AnnexWealth.com. Amy Brammer, CFP and a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for joining us. Always my pleasure, Danny. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, Saturday the 26th. Let's get caught up and go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Back on Money Talk, time for Ask Annex. Got a question? You head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask tab. As always, if we can help, and I know we can, click the Get Started button. Sarah Kyle's a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Hi, Danny. And we've got Matt Morris, the investment team manager. Welcome to you. Hey, Danny. First question today is, what's the best way to determine how much China exposure I have in my portfolio? And why do you think they ask that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of news about China, and it always is a hot button issue, especially politically as well, too. First of all, the answer probably is much less than you think you do. You know, overall, when you look at a global landscape of the total investable equity market, China only represents about 3% of that overall market. Even though their economy is a lot larger than that, it's not a really big part of the investable stock market. So probably a lot less. Also, most investors have a home country bias no matter where you live. And since we're here in the United States, we tend to overweight the U.S. versus other markets. So that 3% is probably even less. But if you really do want to calculate it for yourself, there's a couple ways you can do that. First is if you have software that can actually do it. So we do it internally here. Morningstar is a popular one. Facts at Bloomberg have capabilities where they can take ETFs and mutual funds and actually go underneath the hood, see what they're holding at any point in time and calculate where that home country is of any of the stocks that are there. So Morningstar has what's called an x-ray. And so you're essentially x-raying that portfolio to see the underlying elements there. So that's one way. The other is manually. You could try to figure that out if you don't have access to software that can do that. Any mutual fund and ETF is going to have published holdings that they have. Now, ETFs update daily. Mutual funds, there's a delay to that. So it's it's not fresh data, but it's within the last month or two. But you can go on their websites and they're going to tell you holdings data of the individual stocks. They're also going to tell you probably, depending on the website, what the country representation is of that portfolio as well, too. Especially if you have something that's global or emerging market, they're really going to highlight the country allocation. Next up on Ask Annex, my dad had an account with, and he names the company, he passed away. I received a call from them about the inheritance from that. Guy was saying he needs to open up an account for me so he can give me my portion. Is that true? Or can I just have a check cut to me directly? 
Well, inheriting an investment account isn't just like inheriting a bank account where they will just cut you a check. In most cases, it means that you will first have to establish an investment account in your name before you can do anything with the assets. However, that exact process and options can vary based on the financial institution, the type of account, and the legal requirements of your jurisdiction. So one thing to note, if you are inheriting an IRA, you will be required to open up an inherited IRA in your name. And in most cases, we wouldn't recommend liquidating that account immediately because it will trigger a taxable event and you will have to pay ordinary income tax on that amount you distributed. The IRS gives you those 10 years to liquidate an inherited IRA. So that allows you some financial planning and it gives you the ability to control when you want to take the income and pay those taxes. But would the account need to be at the dad's old place? Typically, yes. Before they transfer it, they open up in their name. It's good for record keeping. And again, sometimes it's legally they have to do it that way. So it just depends on where you are. But that is not out of the ordinary where they have him open up an account in his name first. Ask Annex got a question. Head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask tab. Next up, what does it mean when a stock is under-owned? Supposedly, Apple and Tesla are under-owned. I wouldn't think they would be, but they are, Matt. (laughs) Yeah, good question. And it really relates to how much of the percentage of of an indice that that stock is going to represent, and then how much do people actually hold in their portfolio? Because those are are two really different things. Looking at the S&P 500, generally the most referred to indice that's out there. Apple's a little bit over 7% of that indice. Tesla's a little bit under 2%. So for it to be under owned for the general public, they're holding less than 7% of Apple in their overall portfolio, less than the 2% for Tesla as well too. Going back to the question earlier on China, you can kind of figure out how much representation you have by looking at individual stocks you own, ETFs, mutual funds to see how much of them would own it. A lot of places it's hard to over own something like Tesla because it's greater than a 7% weighting. And a lot of funds don't like to have large position sizes due to concentration risk. So it's hard to overown something like that, but you'll want to go ahead and dig into your portfolio to see where you are. And our final question on Ask Annex, if I was to increase contributions to either an invested HSA or my work 401k, is one better than the other? Well, they both are great. And of course, it all depends on your unique financial situation. The triple tax-free aspect of an HSA makes it more appealing from a tax standpoint. However, withdrawals can only be used for those qualified medical expenses. So sometimes that 401k is more flexible. If you have an employer that matches the 401k, my suggestion would be first to contribute enough to that 401k to get the employer match. Then I would max out the HSA and then continue with the 401k. But if you have immediate medical expenses or anticipate them, prioritizing that HSA might make sense. Sarah Kyle, Wealth Manager, part of Ask Annex. Thank you. You're welcome, Danny. Matt Morsey, Investment Team Manager. Thank you. Thank you. You gave birth to the business. You grew the business. You nurtured the business. Is it time to sell the business? There are steps to selling a business, and we'll talk about that next. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management, where we provide comprehensive investment and retirement planning tailored to our clients' needs. That ranges from starting people out on simple paths all the way to services designed for business executives and owners. With business owners, there comes a point when maybe it's time to put a plan into place to explore a sale, and that's what we're going to talk about here. Do that. Keith Butler joins me. He's a wealth manager and an attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Great to be here, Danny. Selling a business is something that's a process, and certain steps need to be taken to maximize the opportunity for the owner. And it's not an overnight process. But how far in advance should planning begin in order to sell a business? Well, I think it's something that should be thought about all the way through the lifetime of the business, but I would say at least five years. 
because that gives you time to get things cleaned up, if you will, to put a, a, a plan together. And right now, you know, today we're, we're not talking about a business succession plan to family members. We're talking about where you're trying to put it on the market for sale to the general public or to somebody in the industry, perhaps. But you want to plan in advance and get a team together. You've dealt with a lot of business owners over the years. The businesses, they're kind of like children to them, right? Very much so. And one thing that surprised me in a, in a very good way, I think, over the years is how deeply they care about it and the people that work for them in general. I saw many times in transactions where I represented both buyers and sellers, and you could tell that they really wanted to bend over backwards to make sure their people were protected. Yeah. What kind of team should a business owner assemble on the way to a sale? Well, first of all, you, you need to have your attorney. And there might be a couple of attorneys to engage. The first would be a transactional attorney, you know, the person who can execute the transaction itself, negotiate the buy-sell agreement and so on, and also an estate planner because your assets will be transitioning from a business, which typically is the largest asset a, an individual has that dominates their balance sheet, into probably cash. So now the, the makeup being different, that will affect your estate plan quite a bit. You'll, of course, want an accountant. Uh, you will ha want to have an appraiser, someone who can provide an objective value of your company because sometimes people, they, they guess up so too high or too low. It happens all the time. A business broker may be engaged, someone who can go out into the market and find the best potential buyers for you. And, of course, you want a, a financial advisor because, again, you're converting a big asset that's not liquid into uh, liquid assets. Numbers are critical. They, they've got to be right. And these are things that can't be in a shoebox. They can't be on the back of an envelope. And it's something that, again, planning in advance, when we talked about how, how far in advance, I think probably the paper is the biggest thing, meaning that getting a clean balance sheet, getting financial records that really look clean, that wouldn't have some sort of liabilities that would bog down a new owner. You'd want to have a good lease in place. You may own the building, you may not. But if you don't, then having a good long-term lease in place gives some security to the buyer. So you'll want to get those financial records cleaned up, and a good accountant can really provide a lot of value along the way in that regard. Is it jumping too far ahead for anybody to announce that the company is going to go up for sale? I mean, you need to have everything in order, right? I mean, there, there are probably people out there who say, listen, Jimmy, you ever want to sell this place, you let me know, right? <laughs> right, right, right. You know, and uh, that's an interesting question. It's really fact-dependent. You know, I talked to somebody very recently who was very concerned about announcing that because then all of a sudden, if your competitors know you're up for sale, they may see some, some blood in the water. Uh -huh. But by the same token, getting the, the word out there may flush out some, some of the best potential buyers. Keith Butler is a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management with significant experience in assisting business owners in the process of selling their business. We're going through a checklist of proper steps in preparing the business for sale, determining the proper value of the business. We talked a little bit about that. You suggested having the accountant and the appraiser. Right. They're the team that helps there. Absolutely. And some of the things that they'll look at is obviously the financial and tax records. You know, that's really important for having several year track record of that. Uh, they'll look at the inventory, inventory levels. You'll look at a detailed information on customers because we all want big customers, right? But that provides risk. So they'll want to take a good look at the reliability of the customer base and the size. And if you have a whole bunch of reliable smaller customers, then you have a little less risk of losing a major contract. You'll also want to look at vendor contracts and leases. That's something that you want to make sure that there are things in place so that it's a favorable situation that a buyer is walking into. Licenses, liquor license if you're a, a um, 
restaurant or something like that would be really important. An intellectual property, is it, are there patents and trademarks that you have that those have values as well? At what point will potential buyers be able to see this information? Typically, once they express interest, there's a confidentiality agreement that is signed. Once that's signed and negotiated, then the uh, seller would have the confidence that you can provide some of this information. Would the broker help kind of narrow down that field so you just don't have a bunch of tire kickers? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. A good broker will know the industry. They'll know who the real players are. And that's part of the value that that they bring, right? There you go, right? You know, at Annex Wealth Management, financial planning and tax planning are incredibly important. And I would think anybody who has sold a business all of a sudden who might be looking at a very large sum of money mm-hmm. kind of needs to kind of walk through those steps. Absolutely. You know, a couple different ways of looking at it, because if you sell all at once, one closing, all the cash, then that can trigger a substantial capital gain bill, right? Or you could do an installment sale where you're paid over years and then that gain can be spread out. Now, obvious disadvantage to that is the possibility that uh, there's a default risk. Most people would want to get all their money in advance despite that, but that is something you'd want to look at and your accountant can provide guidance with that. And then how about a financial planning angle? Oh, absolutely. Because at that point in time, you've converted, again, the the dominant asset of your balance sheet, if you will, into cash, investable assets. So that is something where you need risk tolerance and analyzed uh, time frames, timelines, what kind of, uh, uh, do you want to do some gifting to kids? Do you want to set up accounts for others? There's a whole lot of different planning. And that's something you may want to do in advance too, Danny, especially if there is a taxable estate tax situation. That's some planning you may want to do in advance where you can transfer some of that interest in that business perhaps to another generation on favorable terms. Because think about the blood, sweat, and tears that were poured into these businesses. It's important to follow these steps. Absolutely. Absolutely. Keith Butler, a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for joining us. Oh, pleasure. Back in Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, the show available as a podcast at the top of the hour, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Clayton. I'll join in the studio. Dr. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Great to be here. You had a busy Friday. I saw a quote from you in Reuters on Friday and also saw you on Fox Business on Friday. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, uh, Chair Powell was speaking out in Jackson Hole and I was able to give a little bit of a response to it in the media. So that's always a, a real honor to be able to do that. I'm paraphrasing your quote, but what was it? Was a lot of words with little. What was, what was <laughs> yeah, your... yeah. Basically, uh, there were a lot of words, but little was said. Uh, you know, it's um, is stark contrast to what he said last year. So last year, when he was in Jackson Hole, which is this giant economic symposium, bunch of central bankers and economists come together. They're talking about sort of big picture items. Last year, when he spoke, he really addressed his remarks. I thought to the general public, which was, hey inflation's a problem and we're going to do something about it and you're probably not going to like it. That was brief synopsis of last year. This year, it was a lot more boring. It was a lot more of what you would expect from an economic symposium. If you aren't really steeped in economics, you might have been like, what is he talking about? Last year, he said, we're not going to like it. And he was right. Yeah, yeah, they raised rates by a significant amount. And actually, one of the big changes was this year he was talking about being careful. Well, last year, it was about being forceful. 
So when he spoke last year, since then, they've increased their target for the federal funds rate about three full percentage points since that August meeting that they had. Now he's talking about we can be a bit more careful or actually a lot more careful about the path ahead because they've already done a lot. And so I thought that was actually somewhat refreshing to hear from him to substitute that word careful for forceful. When he says something, they parse those comments. So when he says careful, does th- what does that mean? Yeah, to me, it means that in if he's going to be careful, it means that they can afford to wait. They don't have to feel like they're on a treadmill. So if you've ever done cardio on like a treadmill or an elliptical, and I know that you and I like to work out, you know, you can kind of feel like it sets the pace for you where you just kind of have to go with it. Well, now it's almost as though they can moderate that. They can jump off of that treadmill if they want want to. And it sounds like that's their plan for at least the next month. The next meeting is September 19th to the 20th. And then they're going to have another one after that in November. Maybe they'll hike then, but they're going to get a lot of data between now and then. But it does sound like they're kind of jumping off that treadmill. So no foregone conclusions? That's correct. And I think a lot of people were kind of disappointed. They were thinking, hey, we want better forward guidance here. And the thing is, he just doesn't know what the data will be. So he can't really give good guidance. Have the leading economic indicators we've seen been misleading economic (laughs) indicators? That's a great way to put it. Yes, leading is misleading. In fact, the leading economic indicators from the conference board have been saying about for the last year that we should be going into a recession. And yet, if you look at some of the coincident indicators and lagging indicators, it's suggesting that now things are looking pretty good unless you're in housing and manufacturing. But the housing data, new home sales especially, have really begun to rebound. And so maybe we could get a little stability with manufacturing. So if the Fed provides some stability with rates, we could get some healing when it comes to manufacturing. With what we thought was coming, was that kind of a dress rehearsal for what probably is going to come? It's inevitable, right? It it is, yes. So there is that difference between, hey, it's inevitable, but is it imminent? Is it coming right away? And Chair Powell did point out that he still does believe that there are legs to monetary policy. We haven't felt the full force of the rate hikes. It takes time for that to show up in the broader economy. You first see it in the interest rate sensitive areas like housing, durable goods, manufacturing, and it takes a long time for it to eventually show up in the labor market. So he is saying that, you know, we've already done a lot and there is likely a slowdown coming. It's just they're not quite sure as far as the magnitude or the timing. As far as our investment committee, the way we were preparing for this slowdown when it was going to happen, we just put that on hold, kind of put it on the shelf and and have it ready? Sure. It's one of those things where if you're anticipating a recession, what do you do? And one of the things is we try to stay diversified and actually broaden the diversification. Instead of taking concentrated bets on a cyclical rebound, we believe that it's more prudent to stay diversified and to stay patient with those allocations. Excellent stuff. Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you very much. Thank you. We are ready to help you take the steps toward the retirement you desire, and we'll guide you along the way. Even better, we're a fee-only fiduciary. AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. We'll be back next Saturday at 10. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ.